these these are my wonderings around it. I was trying to picture. <laughs> That's the only to... way to go forward. I'm with you. These are the yeah. wonderings. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everybody. It's good to be with you all again this week. We're happy to be bringing another conversation about one of theater's best plays to you today. And this one is going to be, I think, probably unknown to a lot of people, which is going to be really fun. Uh, it, it was unknown to me when we came across when we added the script to this season's schedule. It's a privilege to get to talk about new plays. We're kind of continuing in an unintentional, like, three-part, uh, <laughs> like, historical plays trilogy. Like, we talked about The Revolutionists, which is sort of historical-ish. We talked about Men yeah. on Boats, which is historical-ish. And this play is also rooted in two historical events. So that's been kind of, it's been a little bit of an interesting journey. Yeah, surprise theme month that we were surprised by too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, today we are going to be talking about Foghorn by Hene Gigama. Uh, it's a new uh, script, new new playwright to the podcast, and, and we're excited to get to talk about it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Hene Gigama is one of the first um, indigenous peoples to publish drama here in the United States, and that's why he has such historical significance and why, if you've heard the name, you probably heard it in the context of like a theater history class, or if you had a really detailed intro to theater class, where they you tracked the participation of non-white people in theater in the United States and how that became about and what it looks like now, and Hene Gigma is one of those really important figures in that um, in that progression. Yeah, it's exciting to continue to, uh, you know, explore uh, the, the the records of American theater and getting to find uh, uh, Hine Gigama in, 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 the, in the history of, of American theater. And, and, and it's a great play that deals with a lot of really complex issues around uh, indigenous people and stereotypes of indigenous people and, and, and the perception of that. So I'm excited to get into the conversation on it. And I'm excited to do what we need to do right now, which is to recognize <laughs> that Jack Jackson and I are two fairly privileged white dudes. We're going to yep. be talking about a play today that deals with stereotypes of indigenous people, especially by the media and by film. The play is from the 70s, so it would be interesting to think. I don't think we'll do that today, but it would be interesting to think about this play in an updated 2021 version. What are the stereotypes of today? But that aside, that's what the play deals with, and it's written from that indigenous perspective, Hanegigma, that indigenous playwright. So it... We're two white guys, right? So we come from a, a particular lens. We're going to be analyzing it as best we can, but we should not be probably the only voice on this. There is some great analysis done of this play, of the work of Hene Gigama, contributions of indigenous people to theater, especially American theater, which you can find and we encourage you to find. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, quick Google search brings up a bunch of great articles around it and videos around it. So definitely check it out uh, to find some other sources as well. And like Jacob said, we we, we acknowledge our our uh, cultural perspective as we enter this conversation, even as we are excited to kind of shift the lens of attention towards this play. 
We are also excited about what is coming up about a month from now. Uh, We are doing our themed month as we do every season. This year, or this season, I guess, we do them twice a year. This season, we are doing our themed month in November. So that's coming up on your calendar. If you're listening to these episodes as they come out, it's about a month from now. You can look forward to our themed month for season seven. We will announce what that theme is coming up. If you're a patron, I'll I'll give a little lead in here. You already know know what the theme month is and what the scripts are. So that's one benefit to being a patron. Uh, so we're, we're excited about that. Theme month coming up. Mark it on your calendar. I know a lot of you out there love it, so we're excited to do that, and it is on its way. And to our patrons who know what the themed month is, we wanted to say thank you so much for being patrons of the podcast. This podcast is completely supported by our patrons over on patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Um, it's a great way to help out the show. If you've been a longtime listener and are looking for a way to help out the show, that's a great way to do it. You'll find a number of different tiers of patronship over there for as low as $1. You can become a patron, get access to patron-only posts, early announcement of themed months and scripts upcoming and things like that as well as just uh, access to posts from us about things that we're excited about in our intistic endeavors or, or things that uh, we're passionate about. So uh, if you're looking for a way to help out the show and join the greater community of No Script the Podcast, head over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast, and we will see you over there. Thanks to our supporters, and now... Back to the script. Here we go. All right. Hene Gigama, new playwright to the podcast. You know what that means. Short introduction to who he is. Um, Hene Gigama is a professor at UCLA, professor in the film theater and television department. He's a producer, a director, a playwright. He's the artistic director of a couple of indigenous performance groups. In 1971, Gigama founded a new theater company with the help of a woman named Ellen Stewart. She was the director of the La Mama Experimental Theater in New York City and um, the what what went on this was not called it originally but what we now know as the Native American Theater Ensemble was founded as a resident company at La Mama Experimental Theater um, in a later interview about what they were trying to do Gigama says that the aim of that ensemble's work just reading a quote now was to present plays for and about American Indian people plays that are political, propagandistic, cultural, comic, tragic, educational, and simply entertaining in nature wherever those Indian people are located. That ensemble, when they first sprung up in the 70s, were able to do some tours of the United States and Germany, That Germany being relevant to this play especially, um, and then later Gigamai went on to form the American Indian Dance Theater. As near as I can tell, he's still the artistic director for both of those companies. Um, so really significant figure in bringing the artistry of Native American indigenous culture to the stage. He is a, a fascinating guy and has some really, I think, high-level discussions about the connection between ceremony and drama, and then that, of course, being so important to his work as he brings the indigenous cultural ceremonial rituals to drama, and he, he just is able to describe the intersection of those things so well. I'd love for you to check out uh, one or two interviews by him. He, he's a really smart dude, especially in that particular way of talking about what theater is. I was really inspired listening to him. 
This play, Foghorn, um, premiered in nineteen uh, in I'm sorry, nineteen seventy three in Germany at a German theater that I'm not going to be able to pronounce. It's got a lot of letters. It's a German name, uh, you know, Theater im Reichsbahre, something like that. Um, but the company <laughs> was touring at the time to Germany. I mentioned that they did those tours in the seventies. The play went on though to be toured around the country. Um, it uh, at the prestigious Guthrie, Guthrie Theater, of course, in nineteen seventy. Um, later in 1974 at La Granda, Oregon. Um, so that's sort of the life that that had. It is based on, rooted in contextually, these two events in the, the life of the country. Well, lots of events in the life of the country. Um, two specific ones are the uh, occupation of Alcatraz in, in 1969, which went on for like 19 months or something, um, and the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. Those two cultural events kind of opinion the play and if you've paid attention to this context you know that the play was premiered in 1973 the occupation of wounded knee was in 1973 so this is a play that in a really timely way when it was originally produced responded to that event in american life yeah i think that's that's crucial to keep in mind is is is, is this play's uh cultural significance to the moment that it was written it's responding directly to an event that would have been fairly well known about at the time and on the news um, and and it premiering in Berlin even uh, suggests that, you know, some some degree of national news around it as well. So yeah, definitely uh, a, a very current play in the time that it was written. I'm going to give us a short, very meta synopsis of the play, but it's a very episodic play. So likely our conversation will be more or less synoptically involved. We'll probably go through many of the... Synoptically <laughs> involved. <laughs> Um, we'll probably give some time and attention to each of the small uh, ep episodes or episodic vignettes within it, um, because the play is structured in that way. Eleven different uh, episodic vignettes throughout the entirety of the, of the play, which... Uh, present stereotypes of both indigenous people and the uh, American white European people who, who interact with them. So you, you have the, the initial moment of uh, the play. The first scene takes place with the, the Columbus moment or uh, Columbus uh, discovering the Americas and thinking they're India. So you, you have uh, a number of uh, kind of racially charged uh, slurs being thrown out by the different characters and it kind of lands on this uh, Spanish sailor crying out to his captain, Christopher Columbus, in Spanish, um, uh, Los Indios. So uh, you have the, the kind of... Uh the, the the tragic mistake or the or the the the, the lack of, of knowledge of these sailors right away in calling them indios um, second scene is uh, the uh, the siege or the occupation of Alcatraz which is in 1969 so we're jumping around time wise um, and and that scene uh, has them reading this kind of uh, declaration or or manifesto or, or some some sort of declaration of their taking control of the island and offering uh, the the white people on the island their uh, care and nurturance uh, towards towards uh, their continued life on the island of Alcatraz. Um, third scene is uh, a nun school with a very vehement nun uh, school teacher who uh, also launches into a, a lot of uh, racial slurs in front of this uh, class of uh, indigenous uh, folks, children who are there to kind of learn in this Catholic school environment, which is followed up by the fourth 
vignette, which is a kind of clownish American teacher who comes in also with a lot of racial slurs um, and uh, tries to kind of uh, bring around this this classroom of of, of indigenous kids to uh, to learn some English. He's trying to teach them the phrase hello, um, and that that's a lot of the action of that scene. Followed up, we uh, flash back in time to uh, a story of uh, Pocahontas and and her kind of handmaids as she is recounting her and uh, John Smith's kind of first sexual encounter um, uh, that is kind of filled with some uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, a critique of John Smith's ability to to have a sexual encounter. They're making, look, they're making uh, fun of him, right? It's uh, absolutely making fun making of the fun fact of that he could not hold an erection as he yep. has the opportunity to sleep with Pocahontas. That's the scene. It's a it's a satire. It's mocking. It's that's what it mm-hmm. is. Yeah, yeah, and then so then we're followed up with another very sat- sat- satiric scene, satiric scene, satiric. Of, uh, <laughs> satiric. There we go. Thank you. Um, between uh, Tonto and the Lone Ranger, um, if you're familiar with that that old TV show and the, and the movies subsequently, um, uh, this interaction between the Lone Ranger who is having insecurity issues about how proficient Tonto is at saving him all the time, and so suggests this like this death for him that that shows off the Lone Ranger's ability to save him. Um, interestingly, that scene and a number of the other scenes end in the death of, of the Lone Ranger. So that scene, the teacher's scenes, both end in the students kind of uprising and and at least attacking, if not killing, the, the, uh, the teachers. Um, then you have a speech by Lady Bird Johnson in 1969, uh, which is a, a speech uh, that that uh, she's giving about the naming of the re- uh, a reservation's land as a national park. Um, you have a follow-up scene, which is a scene between a spy and the White House, who he's calling to give a report on the uh, occupation of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which happened in 1972, and their kind of plan to try to uh, move the uh, indigenous occupiers of of that space out of out of there. Um, you have a. Uh, uh, a scene that is set to the music of Pass the Peace Pipe, which is a uh, a, a musical kind of number or song um, that is sung out while uh, characters uh, dance around and kind of read off the different treaties that have been made with indigenous people in, in, in America. Um, and then you have a Wild West show right after that <laughs> um, in, in the 10th scene, which is a, a big, uh, again, almost circus-like number of, of uh, the events of, of the Wild West show that they're depicting of, of fighting between uh, Native Americans and, and the white folks who, who showed up and the eventual uh, uh, defeat of the indigenous peoples in, in, that, in that battle. And then you uh, wrap up with the siege of Wounded Knee, or the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973, um, and a uh, very um, you, you you it's it's the moment when the siege ends. So they're all surrounded by the 500 plus uh, government agents uh, who who are there to end the siege, and uh, and yeah, so and and it ends with this kind of uh, return to that moment at the beginning where, where in 1492 the voice of the Spanish sailor comes uh, over and, and names them as Los Indios again and uh, you have the narrator uh, giving a, uh, a what is described as a very compassionate line I am not guilty um, 
And, and both so, the beginning and the end with these scenes where the, the Spanish sailors are uh, calling them Indians for the first time, there are these scenes of basically indigenous people marching, and there's this thematic connection throughout the years, uh, things like the Trail of Tears. And so when the, the folks at Wounded Knee in the play surrender to the federal authorities, they're then marched, and the marching is a symbolic representation of the Trail of Tears and that sort of whole history, and, and that that image of the movement of this this sort of parade, this march, this grotesque thing that's happening is used at both the beginning and end of the play. So there's that bookmark, like, meta-existence of the play that is outside of all of these vignettes that occupy the middle of it. And the action of the vignettes kind of are, are based in more or less reality, but a lot of times the uh, the in between moments of the of the script call for some pretty surreal things happening. There is the sound of drilling between many of the scenes, starting in uh, after scene three and on throughout the play. You have projections that make their way into the play, either of of uh, real photographs, or sometimes there's descriptions of like rocks flying through space and just these kind of very disorienting uh, um, elements of the play uh, between each of the scenes that kind of let each episodic uh, vignette stand on its own, but also not quite, because it is there is this kind of through line of the journey, as you said before. Yeah, I want to read just two quotes uh, from different sources to sort of help begin the, the discussion that we maybe want to have. The first is from the introduction to the anthology that I have, the Hanai Gigama um, anthology. And this introduction was written by Jeffrey Huntsman. And he says of Foghorn that the play is a modern multimedia extravaganza with music, lights, graphics, and human actors. And that, of course, that's, that I think is referencing what you just described, this element of the play that is sort of a visual cacophony uh, and it, 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 it exists between the scenes and sort of is the binding agent that, that, that these vignettes are pulled together on, especially this digging sound and this projection of flying rocks. But there's other projections than that. There are projections of the map of the country. There are projections called for of a large face of an indigenous person, uh, et cetera, et cetera, called various times throughout the play. Um, but there is this multimedia element to even what's called for in the script. It's Yeah, absolutely. And then there's also the, the, the kind of... <sighs> I already didn't say this word right. Right, satirish. Satiric. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Satiric. satiric. <laughs> There's also this satiric element, which is kind of uh, alienating as well, at least to my ears, reading it now in 2020. Of of these kind of uh, brutal slur-filled scenes. Um, but but uh, I'm going to read a quote from the author's note. Actually, yeah, this here is, real this quick. is my second quote. So perfect. So this kind of oh, cool. describes the the writing style and the acting style on the human side of the pairing of technological extravaganza and human movement bodywork. Yeah, yeah. So so Hine Gigama uh, writes at the beginning in the author's note, almost all the characters in this play are stereotypes pushed to the point of absurdity. The satire proceeds by playful mockery rather than bitter denunciation. 
And that's 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 also a, a kind of alienating effect, right? So so you have this kind of satiric element, this kind of playfulness that the playwright is calling for, even as you're you're going through some pretty heavy scenes in terms of what is said um, to to indigenous people and about indigenous people in them. Well, and the tone shifts so strongly, so intentionally, and really so powerfully throughout the play. Right, you have this beginning scene and end scene, which are not humor or uh, they're not humorous they're not satiric at all they're fairly brutal right that that first scene of the march and the spanish sailors and then all of these white humans that say really terrible things have all of these slurs and 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 violent names and actions that are being represented through the march and then that uh, comes around again of course at the end of the play we see this thing repeated in this line i am not guilty these are not humorous or satiric or light-hearted scenes. These are uh, uh, painful, shocking, symb- symbolistic moments, but they're just the bookends for all of these other vignettes, which are huge satire. I mean, they're very yeah. funny in an uncomfortable way sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So some of the some of the reviews or analysis that's been done has compared some of this play, especially to some of uh, the kind of Brechtian theater techniques of of that kind of uh, over the top comedy, uh, gregarious stereotyping. Uh, we've been saying alienation a bunch, and, and we're speaking about it in terms of the Brecht uh, element of theater in alienation that kind of resets your your mind to reengage a pro- uh, uh, something something really difficult, something that you can reengage. Brecht tries to do it without emotion. I don't know if I could sit through this play without emotion. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so those all of those elements are kind of playing uh, as as you are bookended with those those big kind of true uh, dramatic, not dramatic, but like honest, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Honest pain on the bookends. You you go you you travel the journey between those bookends by way of this. Um, stereotype and and magnification of of the characters, and it, it's not like a it's not a stretch or any kind of crazy analysis to say that the play and its its style, its method is Brechtian or inspired by Brecht. We know that through the sixties and seventies there were these social theater movements where playwrights and directors who wanted their theater to be revolutionary, to be uh, socially aware, and not just social commentary but inspire social action that there was this group of playwrights inspired by German author Brecht and then the play premieres in Germany and I don't know that those two things are related but it's an interesting relationship regardless of that. <laughs> it is yeah yeah definitely you can you can kind of see the echoes there perhaps of of some influence between the two um, but but then so so let's let's kind of dig into some of the the scenes themselves. Um, we've talked a little bit about the first scene, which is kind of set, sets you up for the journey. It's it's full of these these uh, uh, various uh, mostly European spoken stereotypes about indigenous uh, folks in in America. And then you get to scene two, which is the occupation of of Alcatraz. Um, and and you have that that scene right away. I liked what you said in the in the uh, context around the connection to uh, 
to uh, the the kind of rituals and 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 theater because it starts right away with a sung songs in in uh in a, it's a Zuni sunrise chant that is sung and so right away out of that kind of uh sound effects from the first one of like, you know, time travel sound effects that he's, that is described as like done with a synthesizer, you're kind of brought back into um, culture and into the, 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 the actual people of the story. And this occupation of Alcatraz is where we get the title of the play from, Foghorn. It may refer to like the blaring of the foghorn to disrupt the occupiers at Alcatraz. It may also refer to the fact that government agents were finally able to quell the occupation and remove the few people that remained after years uh, by pretending that they needed to come on to Alcatraz to repair the foghorn. So there's a metaphor in the title that references this event too. And this is where you start to get this is a this is sort of an oversimplifying thing to say, but if I had to pick, if I re- if I read the script or saw the play, and I said there's really the, the one main thing that the author is doing, you probably would say satire is number one. But the second thing you might say is juxtaposition, that as a tool, the way that Gigama juxtaposes images, relationships, tones. Right, we've already talked about one juxtaposition of tone: the violence, the harshness of the beginning and end with this high humor satire of the middle. Well, the, the Alcatraz scene, I think, sets up one of the major juxtapositions, comparisons, um, uh, slapped together things that Giguma is going to do, which is that in the end of the previous vignette, right, that's the march, the, the all these slurs, it ends with a senator who basically gives a speech which says they are going to move the Native American people, indigenous people, to reservations in the country. So this is from some point in history where that was happening. And then in the next scene, the narrator describing the occupation of Alcatraz, that ends with an indigenous person giving their own speech. And the speech, I think I'm going to read part of it because it'll help get a sense of it. Again, I'm not playing the character. I'm just reading the words written by the playwright. Uh We, the Native Americans, reclaim this land known as America in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. We wish to be fair and honorable with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land who, as a majority, wrongfully claimed it as theirs and hereby pledge that we shall give to the majority inhabitants of this country a portion of the land for their own to be held in trust by the American Indian people for as as long as the sun shall rise and the rivers go down to the sea. We will further guide the majority inhabitants in the proper way of living. We will offer them our religion, our education, our way of life in order to help them achieve our level of civilization and thus raise them and all their white brothers from the sav- from their savage and unhappy state. So right away you get this senator who gives what, you know, the kinds of speeches that happened historically by the white government of the United States. These people are savages. They need to be moved to reservations. They're in the way of American manifest destiny. All this stuff. And then immediately juxtaposed with this speech that says, well, we're going to, you know, the this, this indigenous group might, you know, the... the um, Help me out, Jackson. There, there. It's a, it's, it's not a satire of the speech, but it's a. It's almost like a reclaiming or, yeah. or an acknowledgement of their own role and their, their, their power to do 
um, to, to do it from their side, um, to, to offer this, um, uh, the last lines we will offer them are religion, our education, our way of life in order to help them achieve our level of civilization and thus raise them and all their white brothers from their savage and unhappy state. It's a powerful, um, you know, uh, reclaiming of the words that were said by the, uh, white American government and, and is instead being spoken by them uh, as they, as they kind of claim this island. Yeah, thank you. And it's, it's, I think it is designed to be shocking to hear, right? I mean, I, I think that it is, it's a, it's one of those alienating almost moments, this sit up and what am I hearing kind of moment. And it is contrasted then with those next two scenes, right? You have this nun, yeah. this satiric representation of offering American Christianity, quote unquote, offering American yeah. Christianity to the natives and, the, and the, the racism and the prejudice and the superiority that was behind behind that offering. And then you get that same thing over again, but from the education perspective, right? This white American school teacher who beats and punishes and behaves monstrously towards this group of indigenous children. And you have those things right in juxtaposition with this speech about, you know, the this indigenous person saying, we're going to offer you our religion, our language, we're going to civilize you. Yeah, yeah. The the juxtaposition certainly doesn't stop happening. It almost like it, it just flows really beautifully from two to three and then to four, the to uh second scene, third scene, and fourth scene. Um you see you see the amplifications of what um the white American government was offering, the stereotypes of what the white American government was offering in these two characters of the the nun who is kind of teaching this uh, uh religion uh to the kids, and then the, then the the subsequent scene of this this uh this school teacher who is like trying to get the kids to say hello and just uh is <laughs> very wrapped up in herself and her own kind of self-gratification around teaching this language um she she constantly mistakes or 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 purposely mistakes the action of the children in in the classroom to be like sign language between them and uh she she yeah ends up punishing them for for that this kind of disruptive you can't see my air quotes but they're there disruptive behavior in her classroom in in really repugnant ways so you see the way the offer has turned out the offer that the, the white european american um uh, government had offered didn't turn out the way that they promised Promised it would. And it's a satire of those things as well, right? And and I, I mentioned that it's a satire only to highlight once again that they're funny. <laughs> I mean, right? right? That we started this by saying this is uncomfortably funny. I mean, and these two scenes are a great example of that. That the nun character and the school teacher character are written. Uh, uh, purposefully exaggerated in a way that is intended to be humorous, even as they are uh, representing just the worst of uh, white racism towards indigenous people. Which is then like that that same sort of kind of uh, funny uh, satiricalness is carried right into scene five, where you have the scene with uh, between a Pocahontas and her handmaids as she kind of talks about her, uh, or really John Smith's a attempt at having a sexual encounter with her that uh, ultimately can't happen because he he. Can't 
<laughs> you can't hang on long enough or something. Um, but so I just want to point out how awesome the joke writing is for this scene. It's I yeah, mean, the, absolutely. The comedy is so good. It's such a great example of how to use uh, silence and pacing. I mean, Pocahontas talks and talks and talks about this encounter and everything that was going to happen and everything that she was thinking, and it's all leading up to the moment where the the sex act was finally going to occur. And she's talking and talking and talking, and then this whole little reenactment of how uh, John Smith, the character John Smith, loses his erection before he can have sex with her is is it, it's it's just uh, acted right. She doesn't yeah. describe it at all, and even on the page, it is hilarious <laughs> to have words, 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 and then just this description of action of how Pocahontas represents what's happened in this uh, over the top funny. There's a kazoo involved. There's like a wah wah yeah, kazoo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You you have that 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 journey uh, of this this uh, kind of wrapped audience of her handmaids that are that are just with her for the whole time. I imagine the audience is swept right into that same moment uh, along with them as she's recounting it, and this this you know great sort of embodied way of telling the story uh, that 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 pays off so beautifully by the end of the scene. And this is sort of a this scene is like. It's kind of a like it, it is. It's sort of a break, right? It's a. It is placed in the middle of three other scenes, which are um, primarily uh, characterizations and satires of white people. Actually, four other scenes because the two scenes previous are the nun and the school teacher scene, and the two scenes after are the Lone Ranger scene and the Lady Bird Johnson scene. And so in the middle of that, you get a satiric re- mythic re- uh, retelling of this myth. I mean, a satiric retelling of this Pocahontas story. And it doesn't take into account what we like now know as some of the historical facts of that situation. It's a satire of the white retelling of Pocahontas, right. which I think is just some awesome layering. Which, uh, again, like each of these scenes kind of, you know, turn the clock perfectly into the next scene. So the next scene is, is again, uh, you know, a, a white mistelling of things in the Lone, in the Lone Ranger story. So you have uh, this, this scene that is uh, uh, gone through the Lone Ranger. It does almost all the talking. Uh, Tonto, I think Tonto's only lines in, the, in, the, in that particular scene is Kimosabe. Um, and, and that's kind of repeated throughout. And you have... <laughs> Lone Ranger having this like moment of clarity where he realizes a, that like most of the time he's kind of a stooge that has to be <laughs> rescued by Tonto and and his subsequent kind of trying to uh, s- switch the script a little bit, which uh, doesn't go that well for him in the end. It seems he finally <laughs> uh, gets uh, Tonto to snap um, because of his uh, kind of uh, insensitivity to, well, to and, what Tonto and, and is doing And the proposition, for him. right? It's like what he right. says, how, how the scene starts is that the Lone Ranger character says, well, you have rescued me so much, we should fabricate a situation where I rescue you. So that I can be shown to be the, you know, the hero of this partnership or whatever. So you're already set up for a kind of shift on the Lone Ranger character and story, right? A satire of those characters, making fun of the problematic parts of it, of which there are many. But then there's like a second shift where what he describes as the rescue operation is not a rescue operation. Tonto just dies as part of the story. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which, which, like, I mean, there's there's loads of critique in there on like Hollywood's representation of indigenous peoples in films, and in, in how the 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 you know white male lens has dominated a lot of our our entertainment, uh, certainly in America, but uh, you could trace the through line all the way back through European theater and entertainment. Um, so that it, yeah, it's just it's 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 chock full of all of these sort of critiques um, that that are amplified by uh, the, the Lone Rangers stereotypical sort of like let me write the story a little different so that I look a little bit better by the end of it and there's this running connection of like I would call it a like a theme almost of false promises right there's this promise that uh, the white Europeans made of offering their their religion and their language and their civilizing culture and all of this stuff. And you see sort of scene after scene the way that those promises have rung false more explicitly in the early scenes, the nun as the representation of the false promise of Christianity and the, the, the school teacher as the representation of the false promise that was made about education. Uh, and then you get more more, I would call them more subtle scenes, but that there's a false promise in there too. I mean, the end of the Pocahontas scene is her describing how John Smith climbed into bed with her after he was not able to complete the sex act and says, oh, I promise it won't happen next time. I love you. I promise. I love you. I promise. In the Lone Ranger scene, right, there's not as explicit a promise, but what the expectation is set up is that this is going to be a situation in which the Lone Ranger will rescue Tonto, and that is lost. That's not what ends up happening. The Lone Ranger instead just describes the situation where Tonto dies. And so this this little theme starts out so explicit, so big, and starts to work its way more subtly into mythic representations and stories. And historical ones as well, as in the next scene we have uh, the uh, the speech by Lady Bird Johnson as a result of Richard Nixon naming a reservation a national park. Um, you know that's that's a, a you know clear violation of what was going to be uh, what, what what was supposed to be land that belonged to the indigenous peoples, and and so so you have that that whole scene where uh, Lady Bird Johnson kind of breaks out all these kind of uh, really rough stereotypes of like all these lovely people out here and and yeah so you have you have their uh, lovely stoic faces and right beautiful facial lines and cheekbones I mean yikes yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah and and it calls their clothing costumes and all all of this sort of stuff which um, is that, like that, it, uh, a stereotype of like progressive people, right? I mean, LBJ is of course, yeah. like the bastion of progressive politics in a lot of ways. Yeah, really, really, no one escapes the satiric lens in this play, um, and 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 certainly in this scene, you it kind of lands. You know, we've 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 spent some time in you know heightened heightened representations of of a nun in school, heightened representations of a teacher. Um, uh, you have the uh, Pocahontas story and John Smith. You have these mythic you know fictional characters of Tonto and the Lone Ranger. But then you you you're brought home and you're like, this person actually existed. This act actually happened. I, I didn't do the research to know exactly what she's said if she uh, uh, said something at that event in in real history but certainly that play that those events absolutely happen so you're kind of brought back and grounded in the real the actual the historical and kind of you begin the journey now of of uh, the journey to the end of the play where, where, where we're eventually going back to that more heavy uh, the the siege of wounded knee towards the end 
And and before we get there, we get some other scenes that are comic exaggerations, but which start to have, or it's not start to have, because this has been from the beginning to play. I don't know why I said that, but which further um, encapsulate the kind of grotesque uh, satire that that is that this these humorous scenes that have grotesque given circumstances. Let me say it that way, right? That they're funnily yeah. written, but what's happening is horrifying. Right? You get this bumbling spy who has worked his way into this uh, this occupation by indigenous peoples of the the bureau uh, by he says basically just throwing a blanket and a pair of pigtails on, right? So stuff like that. Yeah. He bumblingly proposes that they're going to pay off. The, and of course, the Nixon slush fund story is the reference being made there. And then you get this uh, satirical redo of a um, uh, like a like a historical encapsulation of all of the treaties made with this yeah. indigenous people with this. I mean, very funny, even on paper, uh, like uh character wearing a bull head who will take these treaties and every one of them, as it's mentioned in the song, wipes his butt with them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause, and, and, and both of those scene to get scenes together and in relief kind of, uh, are, are interesting because the, the spy ends up making more money than the money that was offered to the uh, indigenous folks who had occupied the Bureau. So you, so you have that even, even the deals that are made benefit the 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 government side of things or the European government European American government side of things and then you see all the treaties and and the, the each of them are kind of brought up while this this uh, you know show tune is sung it's a real show tune um, about passing the peace pipe and just kind of chilling out basically is the every time you're mad or something like that pass the peace pipe is the is the uh, the, the, the the lyrics of the song um, so so yeah you have you it's it's really interesting to have those two uh, scenes right next to each other how they communicate into each other and and the through lines of of how power structures are set up to benefit themselves even when they're making concessionary air quotes again treaties to the indigenous peoples. Yeah, so we have these like if if you're trying to group the middle scenes, you get these um exaggerated imaginings uh that that are supposed to sort of represent um, broad things that happened in American history in regards to indigenous people, right? The nun character, the school teacher character. And then you have this grouping of like mythic retellings, right? The Pocahontas retelling, the Lone Ranger retelling. And then you have this grouping of uh, like uh, imagined specific historical events. The Lady Bird Johnson speech about turning a reservation into a national park. The Nixon slush fund to pay off the indigenous people who had occupied the bureau. And then you get these, uh, like a broad historical sweep where you look at all of these treaties made with indigenous people across the course of the country in this enormous satiric way. And to me, they all flow into what, what is not the final vignette, but I would call the final vignette of the satiric middle of the play, which is yeah. this wild west like scalping song and dance routine 
Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of framed as almost like an an ad, like coming soon to a theater near you or coming soon to you know whatever near you. Um, that they they kind of go through what will be the tableaus of this Wild West show, and it's and it's just over and over. You know, it's it's the Wild West show. It's the Battle of Wounded Knee. It's it's the they they kind of go through and have these councils. There's a scalping dance. There's there's eventually uh, some sort of battle that happens, and the 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 card that is read out, the kind of scene. Title card that is read out is the triumph of the whites, and the scene ends. You know, after all this, you know, song and dance and pageantry around the Wild West show, the body, the bodies of the uh, Native American indigenous peoples are all scattered around the stage, and that's the scene that we transition sound-wise in and and uh, projection-wise into the 1973 siege of Wounded Knee. Um, so, so that 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 kind of final scene almost dovetails directly into our our bookend scene um, to, for 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 what is going to be the end of the play. And that's right. That that's that juxtaposition coming again because the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973, the site was specifically chosen. We know because of its historical significance, i.e., the Battle of Wounded Knee so many years before. So this uh, song and dance horrifying cowboy show basically thing it, that is like this historical uh you know the, they call it the wild west show in the script uh then becomes this um present because again this play would have come out in 1973 this present or very recent historical event but we've moved out of the satire into the the violent symbolism the sort of stark um i i don't even know it, it it's it's so highly symbolic and meaningful that it is it maybe even is still satire in some sort of technical way but the tone has shifted away from humor yeah yeah the 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 scenes become much more or the sounds of the scene become much more visceral you have a marshal yelling out basically come out with your hands up you're surrounded you're outnumbered we have orders to kill you all if you resist um and and then you're you're very quickly moved from that scene into a courtroom um where where each of the different uh uh, tribes who are represented at at the at the siege of Wounded Knee kind of name themselves in the courtroom um, for that one one by one until the end of the play. So so it, it gets. I, I agree. At least it feels really real and visceral in that last scene in the reading of it. Um, and and which is eventually bookended as we've said by the the Spanish sailor's voice and the the narrator's kind of last spoken line of the I am not guilty with each of these six or or, or seven or so folks. Who have who have named their tribes and named that they were there at the siege of Wounded Knee? There's so much going on in this play, and I can see our time quickly winding down. Um, I, I want to make a comment, probably about the um, the satirical, exaggerative, humorous lens of the play, and then we probably want to have time to shift and talk about this strange drilling thing that occupies so much of the middle play. That's yeah. so fascinating. So let's let's end our satire discussion here. I just want to note that. 
you know, even still today, but especially if you look at that 20th century media, the representations of indigenous people were all wild stereotypes. And it was part of the problem that a lot of the white American public had only interacted with indigenous people by way of the stereotypes that existed of them in media. And so in a play like Foghorn, I think Igma does something so interesting and 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 smart and impactful really is the word I want to land on in that what he does is stereotype white people right back right it's a flip of the standard and we become the objects of pigeonholing into certain kinds of character roles into um exaggerated uh uh, cultural representations and 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 it's funny, it's very funny, but it's uncomfortable funny, at least for me as a white person reading it. And a play like this is so yeah. complex because the identity that you bring with you into the storytelling impacts what it does so heavily. Yeah, I, I think I cer- certainly reading it in, in, in this day, you know, almost, what is it, almost 50 years um, uh, after it was written, it, it is it is hard to read the play without some sort of sense of culpability from from the perspective of a, of, of a white person reading the play. Um, it's, it's, it's right there. You see, you see the lens of stereotype being refocused on, on uh, the, the white American folks in, in the play. And, and yeah, there's, there is this, this, this sense of, of weight to that, of, of the, certainly a, an audience, an audience watching it, uh, this play, I mean, this play was done, or, or many of Gigama's plays, I'm not exactly sure about this one, but they've been done in Washington. They were done in New York. They were, they were tra- traveled around. So, uh, so yeah, you absolutely have that culpability, com- com- complicity, I think is the word I'm actually landing on the, the, the complicity and wondering how many times you have used this lens of stereotype, uh, uh unconsciously in the past. And that works by way of turning the mirror around. And that's what's so, I think, just interesting about the way the script has been put together. So, the drilling. Let's move and let this, this yeah. one, we only got so much time. There's a lot of stuff that I'd still love to talk about. Like, we haven't yeah. talked a lot about the juxtaposition of the violence and the humor that's in mm-hmm. this play, but we probably won't get to that this time. Right. So, the <laughs> drilling. Um, this is the stage direction between vignette scene three and four, and then every subsequent transition has a reference back to this stage direction. So, this is like the mother stage direction, if you will. Uh, a sharp drilling noise is heard, lights flash, and action visuals of giant chunks of earth flying through space are projected onto the playing area. And then again, every transition says that thing happens again between all of these vignettes. Yeah. Yeah, so so I, I these these are my wonderings around it. I was trying to picture <laughs> That's the only to... way to go forward. I'm with you. These are the yeah. wonderings. It doesn't get any clearer from the stage directions necessarily, but the, these are my wonderings. I wonder about two things especially. Um, the, the first one that kind of comes into my mind is um, some of the images that are suggested for uh, making their way across the projection screen in the in the course of the play um, are images of Mount Rushmore or national monuments or uh, the 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 uh, the you know, various other of these natural uh, wonders that have been uh, set up uh, in, in, in the um, 
you know, American West primarily. Um, so, so I was wondering around that, the, the, why, why the pieces of it are flying through space is a little interesting to me, but, um, but I, I wonder around, um, that, what the weight of that is, is, and, and how, how this play is kind of speaking to, um, how into the very mountains of, of the West of the land of indigenous people have been carved these American European promises, um, and, and that kind of drilling of the rock and seeing the rock floating through space. Um, I wonder if it is in fact, you know, I, I think I read it and, and, and in my reading, I said, oh, you mean outer space? Um, I don't know necessarily that that needs to be the evoked thing. Um, uh, you can, that, that's kind of up to the production company to choose <laughs> what you're trying to evoke with it. But that's, that's my first at least, uh, attempt at, at wondering what it is about. Yeah, the the connection to the monuments I think is fascinating. I think it's it's an interesting um, sort of like the the feeling and the the emphasis to me is on like there's some sort of mechanization and destruction as a result of the mechanization um, that you get with the drilling noise followed by the exploding pieces of earth. I also read outer space when I read it, um, which would lead you to think of like planetary catastrophe, how all that connects to the humanity and the, the sort of mythic representations that are the subject of the commentary and the rest of the show, I'm not really sure. What I am sure of is that the play wants you to remember that what you're watching is something that's happening on stage, that you are supposed to be brought out of the story and back to you being who you are sitting in your seat who has the ability to do something. So I wonder a little bit about it being a sort of intentionally alienating um, presence that it's designed to make you go, oh, that story's done. What is this? What's the next? And to get you into that thinking rather than just experiencing frame of mind, that's some of my wonderings. Yeah, drilling is is an inherently uncomfortable sound. Um, we put, you know, we put uh, uh, hearing protection on if we're drilling uh, in something too loud. So you have that that embodied response to the noise that resets you into your seat in a theater dealing with a play that is talking about something important that you can need to engage intellectually. Um, so you're not just swept up in just the emotion, whatever the emotion is, whether it's, you know, satiric uh, laughing or, or kind of shock or, or, or whatever, whatever it is you're going through, it resets you, embodies you, sets you back down in the theater for the next scene and what the next scene has to offer. I, I like that. Yeah. And it situates, this is my other wondering, let's call it. I like that. It situates the human stories that are about the ways that humans mischaracterize each other, especially the way white people have mischaracterized indigenous people. It situates that within like this grand context where planetary catastrophe is something that exists, where uh, the tiny blue dot in the grandness of outer space, if indeed it is outer space, where natural damage, you think about things like oil drilling. I mean, it, it, to me, there's also this situation of human stories within planetary, natural, enormous stories. Hmm, yeah, this kind of this this bigger theme of 
what you know what, what the, on, on our on our little rock here <laughs> what what are we doing um what what is are, are we are we um taking care of neighbor are we are how are we interacting with those who share this this uh, planetary space with us yeah i mean all, <laughs> the, the the kind of beauty of the way it's written in the script is all of these are an option um <laughs> the, the you you're kind of able to approach these uh kind of um, extra is the wrong word, but these exterior perhaps elements to the spoken plot of the script with um, all sorts of interpretive implications and, and hopes for what the audience are going to take away from the experience. We could spend a lot of time talking about this play. There, like this, true. This, this play is packed to the brim with stuff that is interesting, such crazy symbols. I mean, the symbol of the cross wrapped in money, the 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 incredible yeah. image of the bumbling spy stepping out of the phone booth into a shower of cash. I mean, so mm-hmm. much of that stuff is here and would be awesome to talk about. And it's eleven vignettes, so that's a lot to cover. We only talk for fifty minutes to an hour, so I regret to say that we have run out of time because the, the script is so fascinating. But alas, I think that is the case it's true sadly we have uh we're we're coming to the end of our time but it doesn't mean the conversation has to end especially with this conversation we would love to hear all of your thoughts on on the script on on foghorn or or on this conversation if you have anything to add whether you have read this play seen this play um been in this play we would love to hear uh your thoughts on it you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter at the username at no script podcast we also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about Foghorn with you. That's right. You can suggest this podcast to your friends, families, folks you know that like theater. That'd be a huge help to us. Send them to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We're on all of those places. But like Jackson said, we're also on Facebook. And I know there's a lot of folks that aren't great at things like podcasting. So if you want to just connect with us on Facebook, then you can, uh, every Monday when an episode's released, you can just click the link and that'll open up the episode and you'll be able to hear it from there. So you can have folks connect with us on Facebook if you wonder about connecting on Spotify and things like that. Coming up next month, November, is the themed month for Season 7. We're excited about it. We hope you're excited about it. We're excited to tell you what it's going to be. And for our wonderful patrons, don't don't share the secret. I don't know. What, what, what's the message? They already know. Keep it on the down excited. <laughs> Yes, indeed. We're excited for that coming up. But we'll be back with another script next week. So until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.